Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. This week in episode 8 of Around the Coin Podcast, Brian Romley, Mike Townsend, and Faisal Khan explain why Simple was acquired for $120 million by a 150-year-old Spanish bank. Then, Faisal tells us why the mortgage system is broken across India and Southeast Asia and explains in detail for entrepreneurs how to fix it. Around the Coin Podcast. All right, guys, how are you doing today? Doing good. How about yourself? Great. I'm great. doing wonderful. So doing today we have, we have the recent simple acquisition, which is a pretty big deal causing some uh, ripple effect. Um, what do you guys think? Do you have any uh, high-level thoughts on, on, on Simple? Well, I can uh, Brian, maybe jump in and give us yeah. some... Uh, you know, I, I, I think w- what we define as banking is going to radically change even more than it has over the last 15 years. Um, if you were to talk to anybody... Uh, who was 25 years old 10 years ago and tell them that you probably never walk into a bank again, they would think you're, you're insane, right? Uh, today, that's not only possible, that's very likely. The, the physical manifestation of a bank is, is really becoming less and less useful. Um, what really precipitated that? Well, the ATM machine precipitated that. Electronic deposits uh, precipitated that. Um, in the United States, I would, uh, I, I don't have the exact figure, but I think it's 87% of, um, uh, of paychecks that could be electronic are electronic. Okay. So it's pretty high number. Uh, and all government pay- payments, uh, all electronic benefits transfers are electronic. Uh, these two convergences have created a, uh, a condition and an expectation on the part of consumers, if you will, to be electronic in payment. So we're not physically handling our money anymore. We're not touching, you know, in America, dollars and, and coins. It's all electronic. So it starts with this idea. I think the real revolution was when people were getting paid electronically uh, and then and then winding up dispersing those funds through you know, ATM debit cards and checks and, uh, and a certain sector of the population who may quote unquote be unbanked, uh, are getting, uh, a, a payment card, uh, a, uh, a vehicle to use to pay for goods and services and, um, potentially online bill payment. So that's the direction where it's going in the United States. Um, and simple is sort of on the leading edge of that. And what's interesting is the way a lot of people look at this is it's always about the unbanked or the, you know, non-served individuals. And it really isn't about that. It's about the shift of how people have changed their relationship with money. And we're in the middle of it. I am, I could go on for quite a while on how I see this shift is going to constantly change. You know, we had a few years ago in 2009, I believe it was, Mint dot com was acquired for about 170 million. This is simple being acquired for 120, 117. Um, yes. You know, a lot of a lot of people compare the two companies. Uh, Mint is really a, 
uh, consumer tool. They integrate with your banks, but you know, Simple largely does the same thing. Simple is not a bank. They're just the intermediary between the FDIC uh, insured yeah. institutions. You know, that's do like you saying, think that there's a but, lot more opportunity? Yeah, but that's like that's sort of like saying that the iPhone isn't really a phone because it's using AT and T. Or, or or Verizon or any anything. The reality is the the function under this model. I'm not saying banks are going to become completely irrelevant. I think there are things that banks are are doing or and are going to do that is going to continue to create relevancy. And that's yeah, sort of a all, different topic. That's purposes to the to the user. To the user, it will be a bank, right? There's the no doubt about it. Say- the, this is the consumer facing side uh, and and it is a it is a dismediation uh, you know if you will and it's it's a beautiful concept and the the fact is you know we could talk about it was 1969 it's not that long ago when the very first ATM was dropped at Rockefeller Center a, a bank called Chemical Bank which is now Chase Bank and when they dropped that technology out there they didn't drop it to save money they dropped it as a way to make money. They said, well, we're going to put this ATM out there. It costs us a lot of money. So we're going to charge, uh, I think it was $3.20 anytime you, you went to the ATM machine. And the, the, it's just interesting how these things have progressed. Now, obviously, ATMs uh, and, and banking uh, out in the street level have changed the experience tremendously. In some ways, it's, uh, it's almost to the point where you have people, you know, saying, well, why do I even have to go into the lobby? Just, you know, put that ATM machine on the side of your building and, and, and that's it. And obviously that's where it stands today. So really, uh, to a lot of people, and I think the percentage is 73%, uh, that use banking today and, and access an ATM never walk in a front door. They're just going to the side of the building. Mm. That creates oh, yeah. opportunity. Nor, if, a lot if, of opportunity. If they do, if they do, it's, it's, they don't want to. You know, it's a friction they point. To. They do if they have to, they validate their, you know, their identification, but, you know, they don't want to do that. They want to use the iPhone that has your fingerprint scanner and not have to leave the comfort of their house. Um, what, what's interesting, I thought, about Simple's acquisition is that they were acquired by the 34th largest bank in terms of tran- total assets. You know, are there going to be 33 more? Are there going to be uh, consolidation? Because what they're doing is allowing Simple to run as a completely separate entity almost like um, Zappos and Amazon. You know, Zappos sure. stays the same. Simple will stay the same. What's, what's going to happen to Simple? Are they just going to keep acquiring users and, and maintaining that growth? Or are other banks going to start looking at buying or acquiring or building their own more, um, you could say, better user experiences? Well, I think a lot of banks would advocate the fact uh, that they're already innovating and they're already doing these things. But the, the problem is they're creating an environment where people feel like they're being siloed and funneled into a specific bank entity. And the independence, the ap- apparent independence of, uh, of these, uh, I feel like they're metabanks, um, is, uh, is actually something that's attractive. It's one of the reasons why, you know, Walmart is uh, quickly becoming the, uh, the, the largest bank in the United States. Uh, when you look mm, at the functionality of, of their payment cards. So it's a consumer experience and banks have been laggard in, in understanding how quickly to take advantage of the shifts in technologies. It's changing. And, um, you know, a, a lot of different sure changes is. took you place. Know, you know, I want to give What's a perspective. It used to, be, it used to be a tool. I want to give a perspective. Uh, for me, changes in the banks is happening uh, of late are analogous to what email did to the fax or what the mobile phone did to the landline. You know, they absolutely disrupted the whole thing. And simple, uh, like the mobile wallet is doing the same thing to the traditional bank account. And I think uh, simple is an example of that. It's it's a middle layer that if you could afford to underwrite yourself, and if you're sick and tired of the existing onboarding and uh, interactive process with the, with the traditional banks, you have a market uh, as a middle layer, uh, oblivious to what bank is at the back end and you're servicing customers that you feel need to be serviced in this day and age. And that's what simple, uh, th- that's simple's simple formula, uh, no pun intended. And, uh, and I think regarding the Spanish bank, I think, I don't know if you know, but Spain has historically been one of those countries that has actually experimented with, uh, 
very new types of ATMs and payment systems. Uh, this is one of the reasons why the um, the Mobile World Congress happens in Barcelona, uh, in Spain, and not anywhere else Good in the point. world. Good point. Uh, and they're very, very experiment. You know, they, they're open to experimentation. So, and I think Simple is an experiment that other banks are sort of waiting in the sidelines, seeing how it folds out. And the bank in Spain said, you know, hey, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to grasp this and go for it. And that's exactly yeah. what they've done. Why Spain? Well, is this. there anything? Is there just a few guys over there, the executives of those banks that are a little more progressive, or do they have some better I, I, system? I, I think it's uh, Spain has uh, got a few things working for it. The, the, the mobile uh, the, the conference that happens over there, the World Mobile Conference. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, the, sec- the second thing is their unemployment rate is quite high. So they're, they're looking at innovative ways in which they can make more tractions. Uh, their ATM design, they, they're one of the first countries to go to a very uh, unique and maverick ATM design uh, uh, that's rolled out over there in quite a few places. Uh, it, there's so many geopolitical factors that are uh, you know, common to Spain that have somehow made them at the forefront. It's not very easy to pinpoint them. But they've been very, they're very forthcoming. Uh, they look at it as an art form and uh, they're experimenting with this art form and they are willing to invest in it. And I mean, $117 million peanuts. If you, yeah, if you, you, know, if you, uh, if you can, if you can revolutionize the entire banking industry in Europe with that, with that kind of money and, 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 and uh, interface or a middle tier, why not? I mean, that's, that's a fantastic buy. You know, yeah. Faisal brings up something very interesting. It was at the 2011 Mobile uh, World Conference that uh, uh, chairman of uh, BBVA, friend, uh, Francesco Gonzalez, created a handwritten note and sent it to, um, uh, I think, Shamir uh, Karkel, uh, one of the co-founders of Simple. And uh, 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 Shamir was really being quite negative about how banks were approaching technology and specifically customer service. And, you know, that really intrigued him. And it was that particular moment where this all took place. It, it, it was literally at a conference. Now, the Simple was only 13,000 customers at that time, maybe 11,000 customers. Today, they're still only 100,000 customers. They're relatively small, but they have a powerful impact as the future. I mean, everybody I know that's in this space always sort of bring them up uh, and, and saying, well, you know, they pivoted, they were going to be a bank. And I never saw that. I saw them always as being in the, the front most layer. I think simple, this, ca- simple is yeah. more or less like, uh, like, you know, Brett King would say the web, th- the bank 3.0. Sure. Mm-hmm. So they're the Absolutely. bank 3.0 version. Uh, they are, uh, you know, they added a middle layer between the customer and the traditional bank and, 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 you know, make, made it work for what people are wanting right now in a banking system, how they interface, how they interact. I mean, it's the same bank at the back end, but it's yeah. just the, it's the front end customer exactly. on, onboarding experience that is 3.0. I mean, we still have web servers and they still serve HTML, but there's a huge difference between web 1.0 and 3.0. And that's exactly, and, okay. and that's the way I look at it, simple bank 3.0. And, the, and those things make all the difference in the world. Um, I mean, for instance, I use USAA and as a bank, they're great because they have no physical locations. And you're comparing that to, um, I'm looking at a list, Wells Fargo has 6,300, JP Morgan 5,700, USAA has essentially zero. And they're smart about it because they don't, they don't, they don't fail on the experiences that you need. For instance, if you need to deposit a check, a large check, anything over $5,000, they have a machine that they've built and released in every UPS store. So there's UPS stores that you can walk in with a USAA check. They scan the thing, they look at your license, you know, and you're all set to go. And it's in, in your account the same day, you know, because all essentially, what does a bank do? You know, a bank essentially was created to validate your identification. It was used as a selling tool. You come into the bank, you know, you create an account, you talk to the sales guy. You don't really need that anymore. I think, you know, to your point, Faisal, uh, Faisal Brett made an interesting point in his, his speak when he said, you know, you can touch a customer 20, 30 times in a week uh, if you use their mobile app, but mm-hmm. maybe once every six months if you have a physical location. And then look at the overhead involved. So, I mean, if you look down, there's there's tens of thousands of banks. It wouldn't surprise me if, you know, you know it, it's like five, 10 years. It's like the Spanish bank had access to HTML5 and no one has it and they yeah. went and they went and they got it that's beautiful 
Simple as that. And and I yeah, think, he, and, and just one more point, and I think, uh, and, and I quote Brett King again on this thing, he says, you know, it, it's not a risk. It, you know, it, it, other banks, traditional banks are looking at it as, as a risk, you know, to go this route. And the way he sees it, he says, it's not, it's, it's actually, it'll be a risk if you don't do anything about it. You know, you know if, if you don't change yourself, that's a risk itself. Not sure. not not sitting on the sidelines. That's not a risk. Sure. The risk is not changing it. And remember, exactly. we have people who are born and raised as Gen Y who are now coming into the banking sector yeah. as customers. Well, you know, if if you look at banking and you look at the thing that is most invisible to everybody about what banks really are, the the real thing that banks offer is trust. They're creating an environment where let's face it i mean you give somebody your hard-earned cash and it's electronically being deposited you want layers of trust you want to know that that money is going to be there and and look what happens the moment that insurance isn't there at a bank fdic in the united states and other parts of the world there was a country that decided to deduct a certain amount of anybody who made uh who has over a hundred thousand dollars in their bank account just because so you know that creates a whole lot of distrust now what really is a bank anymore i mean can other institutions build all of these other sort of infrastructure relationships well yes they could now legally there are some you know things that stop that and so why are people fearing becoming the bank and we talked about this in prior shows the fear is it slows down on innovation. There's things that you can't do within the the, the format of, of a bank holding company. And there are things that you wouldn't want to experiment with in the United States. But outside the United States, uh, companies like BBVA have had some incredible fast tracks in, in testing things out. Australia is another case. I mean, Australia is a great test bed for technology. It's a, it's a great place for every startup that is doing anything in payments to to be the next country. You know, I've advised that for a decade now. But when we go back to the banking relationship of not just somebody who's, you know, below the age of 16 moving forward, uh, but all of us, it's already it's already transformed. I mean, people are, are looking at the bank at milestones in their life, right? What are the milestones? Well, if you're a, a wage earner or something like that, one of your milestones might be getting a car. Um, a college or university loan. Uh, if you know your parents didn't do something, maybe the bank would be a part of that. And then finally, the mortgage is the huge milestone within the life of most people. Now, those milestones traditionally were banking functions. In fact, the early savings and loan and the wonderful life story, if you go and look at it, it's a wonderful life. I, I tell anybody who ever wants to start in payments, go and watch that movie through the eyes of 2014 and look at what this guy was trying to do and look at all of the different complexities of what was going on, who was controlling the financing and why was it so hard to have a savings and loan and why was there a run on that savings and loan and how would that change today? Because the savings and loan really wasn't a bank. It was kind of like a startup. It was somebody, it, it would be well, like kind of simple as today in, in some regards. It's a, it, it's a, it's a place to sort of interact with your, with your money and hopefully at some future date, take that money and use it to buy your own first home. And so you look at this functionality. What did a savings and loan do to somebody in the 1940s? Well, you couldn't go and get a mortgage in the 1940s easily. The only way you could do that if you were a working individual was to go to a savings and loan and you would take the money of everybody else who's a working individual and use that to get your home. And, uh, you know, that era is obviously gone. And we're in a completely different world now after what happened in 2008 with the mortgage derivative meltdown. But those foundational milestones in banking those are opportunities. These are places where I think the future is going. How do people interact with their relationship with, with money? What does credit really mean? What does a debit really mean? These things are all going to redefine. And uh, we're already kind of doing that. If we're receiving our, our income electronically and we're paying our bills electronically and we're not interacting with our cash in any regard, we're already in that world. We mm. just don't really quite know it, mm. you know. Yeah. And, and the interface is going to change. Mm. You know, there is a this is uh, the traditional banks. If 
you were to look at the problem and say, you know, okay, we're going to wipe the slate clean. We're going to go back to the drawing board. We're going to rewrite the complete processes of onboarding a customer the 2014 way with the 2014 technology. There is so much inertia and so many people would lose the jobs. So many processes would have to be destroyed and new ones to be made that it's almost impossible for a huge bank like, let's say, Bank of America or Chase Manhattan, what have you, to implement something like this. And that is exactly what Simple saw. You know, they saw this that there is an that there is an inherent problem in the onboarding and customer services. If I can create a middle layer and service them, and somehow negotiate an an agreement with the bank to get better charges, the differentiator is my income, and you know work on that. And that's exactly what they did and took it on board. But now today, if you were to look at the traditional banks, they are very cognizant of where they lack. It's just that the the, the cost of inertia is so high. That it's not easy for them to roll such things, such 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 you know things out. Faisal, I have I have a question, and, sure. and I really want to see this perspective. Walk me through the process of buying a home in your part of the world. How do you get a mortgage? What's that whole? Unfortunately, like? in the entire South Asia, Middle East, and almost all parts of Southeast Asia, mortgages are is a privilege reserved to a very very small very small uh, part of the population. Single digits? Double digits? Maybe digits? maybe even smaller than single digits. Uh, wow. It is wow. such a small thing. This is why the, this, this is, why do you think people live with their parents? For the same reason, they can't go and buy it. Property prices are so high, uh, you know, buying it, it's all cash. I mean, you have to have the money to buy it. There, there's no way you can get financing because Things like 30-year mortgages or 25-year mortgages, unheard of. Uh, uh, heard of only for those people who've been working in the industry for a good 15, 20 years, have a senior white-collar job, you know, stable income, et cetera, et cetera. They might qualify for something like that, but not to the full amount. Absolutely never to the full amount. But uh, mortgages in this part of the world? Mm-mm. How uh, about loans? How, how about... Yeah, I was just going to ask. And, and on top of that, not even just loans... But but uh, between the banks, are there is there a difference? Because in the states, there has to be a see. This uh, is the predominant difference differentiator between uh, the banking system in the U.S. and uh, Europe, and the banking system in this part of the world, which is South Asia, the Middle East, and the Southeast Asia. The mortgage, the real estate element, is absolutely a miss. I mean, it's just not there. If it's there, it's negligible. It doesn't show up on the map. And the income model of banks over here is more, more on consumer loans, not house loans, consumer loans, car loans, television, credit cards, what so have walk, you. Walk, walk me through a car loan. I mean, is that a bank experience? Is it, how, how, it, would, how would I get a car loan? In, in well, same thing. You have to qualify. Uh, you know, your, your credit rating would be checked if, if one exists. Uh, you know, but you, do I physically walk into the bank? I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. It's really a, it's, the whole mechanical it's process. A, it's, a, walk in? it's a very antiquated process. It's a very frustrating process. And it's a very invasive process. Invasive as in sense, they'll actually go over and ask for all the intimate details of your income, where you live, who do you live with. Well, you know, okay, so this house is owned by your mom. How much does your mom make? Uh, you know, all those stuff. Wow. because. Uh, and they have the right to, you know, take the car away if you don't you know, do that. But 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 it's it is such a one sided equation, and it's in favor of the banks. It's not in favor of the consumer. Consumer protection rights uh, laws are absolutely non-existent over here. I mean, the banking ombudsman is there, but you know, so only so much you can do with that. So, who would originate the loan? Would I be at the car dealership, or would I go to the bank? No, no, and no, get no, the no, no, no. First? Car dealers are are the least people involved. Uh, you go to the bank. You're always the bank. You go to the bank. You say, "Listen, I want to buy this car." Your typical down payment, if you have excellent credit rating, probably be about fifteen to eighteen percent. If not, wow. then you're looking at 25% and it's a three or a five-year uh, lease on the car. What's the interest rate looking like? Uh, so if we have something, uh, uh, it's called KIBOR, which is essentially LIBOR. So LIBOR plus about four or five percent, six percent. So about 18 or 19 percent. So what is car ownership as a percentage of the population in general? It doesn't have to be Those numbers, numbers are not published as per se because of the you know, the, the gray economy that exists, the parallel economy, the undeclared income economy. So officially, obviously, the production numbers are here. But if you look at the ownership versus, uh, let's say, finance, uh, it, it's a pretty small number. Uh, uh, and it's not 
it's not that small. It's probably in single digits or maybe in the low double digits. And that's because of the corporate financing. So everyone who's got a job gets the car finance and so forth, you know? This is fascinating. So do you feel like there's an opportunity for home ownership and mortgages in this region or huge, is home huge, pricing too? I mean, it, it goes without saying it's a huge opportunity. What's the, what's the barrier? What, what's uh, stopping? Laws. It, it, it's the laws. It, it, really? it, it, the laws with respect to real estate investment trusts, laws with, res, with respect to mortgages, laws with respect to bankruptcy protection. I mean, for example, I'll give you an, an Indian law that, that's applicable here. So you go get a home and you're living in it, you finance it. And obviously you're living in a joint family system, so you financed it and you're, you know, your, your brother or your siblings may be living with you, your parents may be living be living with you and uh, you come to a default position. You're going to default on your loan. So what you do is you go to the local court and you get a stay order. And you basically are now fighting a case in the court of law that will run for a couple of years. And until that case runs, the interest principle is guaranteed to the bank, but the interest is uh, any profit is frozen. And uh, until that case is not decided, guess where you get to stay? You get to stay in the house. So until these laws are not wow. fixed... It's very difficult to enter into such a uh, ecosystem where mortgages are the norm. So, do they have a fractional? Is there a fractional reserve uh, banking system in place at all? I think between the, I think there's a fractional reserve banking system. Uh, I do not know of a country where one does not exist. Okay. Uh, but uh, so, so, so the income level. If you're asking how the bank's making money, uh, treasury bonds, government treasury bonds, they're loaning to the government. The commercial banks get the money from the central bank. The central banks are buying treasury bonds and, and giving it to the government because oh, in, invariably they're either doing uh, T bills, T bonds, or treasury bonds, treasury bills for the government, and you know the current account deficit that needs to be financed, and that's how they do it. So the government is a bigger and a safer client. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis thousands of small car dealerships. You know, this is just absolutely fascinating to me because you know, in America, we have this view that everything is just like what we have here all around the world. Mm -hmm. And even though there's this sort of trend that everybody thinks that home ownership is, you know, it's th that dream is done. <clears throat> the people making those claims are probably single. And this is why. This is why you know when when they say uh, if you've never heard that uh, word, you know the American dream, buying your own car. Where does that come from? It's because immigrants never had access to the car in their native countries. They couldn't go and buy one, and yet they come to the U.S. and they can get one on a lease. So that's, <laughs> that's interesting. And that's and you get know, to buy a house and, they, and they the house can, as well can, and the house yeah. as well. So in a business and, and it, it, the American dream exists. I mean, uh, for, at a cost, for yes, but it does. <laughs> so let yeah, me, let me ask you this. Maybe, uh, I'm not sure who would be best fit to answer this, but if you have <clears throat> traditional banking systems that are heavily regulated and essentially acting as the handcuffs, uh, to innovation and growth, it seems and to some extent, is there any opportunity for a, a cryptocurrency to come in and, you know, sort of liquidate or, 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 or liberate some of the people to make, Loans. Absolutely. I mean, is there going to be a loaning system on uh, well, Bitcoin or another? So, so, so let me, for my part of the world, um, a cryptocurrency would probably never get the recognition of a fiat currency in, let's say, the coming three to five years. I mean, I can say that with some sort of, some surety. Uh, most of the banking laws in these parts of the world do not have uh, an adage or a passage or an element or elbow room to even define a secondary currency that is digital in nature. It just doesn't exist in their books. So they have to go and create these laws in their banking manuals or what have you to even define a currency like that. Even if a currency comes in as digital money, it would first and foremost, in my opinion, and I could be wrong on this thing, be treated as a payment protocol, as a payment network rather than a currency per se. Of, uh, with, with intrinsic value. Most likely start with the payment protocol and then perhaps graduate as a currency. And even if it does, it will still be regulated by the central bank. They, th there is a very slim to none chance that the private sector could somehow drive the Bitcoin or the other cryptocurrencies into a parallel 
loaning or banking sector because the banks and the federal government, it's all about taxation. I mean, you have to understand that. I think Brian has already spoken to that. It's all, the government is interested in taxation if there is a system that could somehow even remotely offer a possibility of circumventing taxation. They want to regulate it. And I don't think so. Bitcoin has, uh, I mean, look at gold. Gold is available plenty here, but you don't see people getting into the business of, you know, loaning gold out because it's not not something that can be loaned out without prior permission from the central bank or the regulators. Mm -hmm. So I don't think so. Bitcoin is going to come in as a loaning mechanism anytime soon. Well, well, let's let's do a thought experiment. Sure. And and, and we'll basis, what is is the typical middle income home selling for in converted to U.S. dollars in your part of the world? Uh, well, there are societies, so it depends which society. I mean, I live in a semi, semi-affluent society, so let's say a middle income is about 500,000 U.S., maybe okay. more. And that's, that's and, a home would, and a home would cost about how much? 500,000 U.S. Oh, so the home would be 500,000. Yeah. Now, if you were to look at the entirety of the population... Where do you think the average home selling price would be? About, Obviously, I don't about, think it'd be a about, about 100 and 100, 150, 170,000. Okay. So imagine. I mean, in, if, Bomb, in, in Bombay, a flat in, in Mumbai, as they say, a flat sorry. is a million, two million US. Oh boy, yeah. Yeah, and, and so that's the, a very small flat. In Hong Kong, it's even worse. I mean, you know, you, you, it's it's thirty thousand to seventy five thousand dollars a square foot. Sure. So let, let's look at this uh, from from a point of view of somebody who invented a credit protocol that lives on top of Bitcoin. You have the owner of the property, who let's say he's convinced to take the value of that property in a sale in algorithmic currency, and he can go and do with it what he will. We'll call it Bitcoin right now. And the new owner of that property is not the person moving in, but the person granting the loan. Mm-hmm. And they're, and it's not a mortgage. Mm-hmm. It's a rent-to-own environment. Mm-hmm. And the Bitcoin coin protocol is the mechanism that allows not only the contracts to take place from anywhere in the world, because a Bitcoin with its open ledger this is so important to understand. The Bitcoin open ledger has the prospect of creating a contract anywhere in the world that can easily be opened if the encryption is allowed to be opened. <clears throat> and you can actually create algorithmic currency that allows for a, a, a message or even a, a huge data payload, mm. uh, payload mm. to be opened up at some point in time. But let's let's just look at the Bitcoin protocol within that. Uh, you know, the sender and receiver can send a message and that message could be uh, the function of a contract. So now we have somebody who does not have to deal with the real estate laws of home ownership uh, to grant a loan to somebody. Yet the person living in that house is wow, that's in a way... Oh, well, this is where well, it's well, going. Well, the consensus ledger allows you to do that in Bitcoin. Uh, very, I mean, the next uh, homebound applications actually point to that, uh, you know, that, that specific vertical where contractual obligations in the, in the ledger are recorded. And if need be, they can go and, you know, look at it. And exactly. so, so that dispute cannot occur. But the fact of now, the matter... Now, gentlemen, look, mm-hmm. think about this. Though. Let's just, just go down to, to the nth degree of this thought experiment. Now we have somebody... We know there's pent-up demand uh, just by your thesis in that part of the world. I would I would assert that this pent-up demand is everywhere on this planet, especially in the quote-unquote undeveloped areas. The more undeveloped the area is, the more profound this form of credit becomes. And we can look to Africa. Africa is going to be an amazing opportunity. South America, uh, you know, any developing country in China even. What happens with this protocol is obviously it's a currency in some regard, but it's much, much more than that. And we, we took one sliver and we call it now a contract mm. verification mechanism. Mm. But what are we doing? We're liberating the ability for you and I can sit here and say possibly that somebody in South Africa or Middle Africa, uh, maybe a home might cost $3,000. And, and maybe that can be fractionalized amongst a whole lot of crowdsourcing. All of a sudden, you have now the ability to get this credit to an individual who otherwise would have to go through 
a tremendously complex and old infrastructure that's just hogtied with regulation. The rental infrastructure is a much more concise type of environment, except for rental control and you know areas, and that's yeah, already it's developed. Simpler. Yeah. It's much simpler. And getting the person out of that house in a rental environment, they have a lot to lose because they're renting to own, right? I, I, so I it, think there's no if doubt. They they're losing everything. I think I did, there's no doubt that, you know, obviously Bitcoin has a role. But, but look at the inherent th- problem. The problem remains is default. How do you cater to default? And if you foresee, a, you know, between a bank, and, and, and I say this all the time, that the CFO is the CEO, because the bean counters, sure. you know, they understand it, yeah. and actuarial sciences come into play, they, ha- they see, you know, that they have to put their money in, and they can loan it out for a short period of time to the government or to some corporate entity, or a 30-year mortgage, uh, you know, which has obviously over the 30-year run some great uh, uh, prospects of making money for the bank sure. but, they, but they they don't see that long term it, it's too high risk for them for a media median or average person they would rather but that's why bank that's why bank 3.0 is such a radical concept because yeah, they, yeah, 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 yeah but, but, but you have to understand that in, in case of simple bank 3.0 is not just bank 3.0 you have to understand oh, they, they are underwriting their risk with the original bank in some manner sure. i can i can guarantee you my bottom dollar that that arrangement was done at somewhere down the line uh, because no bank is going to come and say well yeah sure you can use our infrastructure our apis our core banking and all our facilities and products at a discount and we won't hold you accountable since you're reselling those services you, there is some underwriting process that has gone in um, yes yeah, i have to imagine it's very similar to say you know stripe stripe.com and wells fargo you know stripe stripe does a lot of the front end interface and they'll do a lot of the um, the calculations to see if there's fraud, but the underlying processing is done by the larger acquirers. Um, do you think there's a parallel, Faisal, to uh, LendUp, which does uh, essentially the Web 3.0 version of small loans, payday advances or payday loans? Is that is that a big industry over there, or how does that structure with no, short-term unsecured no, so, loans? You know, that's a very mature industry when you talk about payday loan advancements and so forth, discounting or invoices or uh, things like that. Uh, but in an emerging market, the regulator has a fiduciary duty to its uh, you know, shareholder, which is in this case being the government, to make sure the economy is balanced, the flow of money, the money supply is in check, inflation is in check, and so forth. But one of the f- things that they have an absolute... Uh, tunnel view, if you will, um, and, and rightly so in some manner, is to ensure that the risk mitigation uh, and risk uh, is exposure is minimized for banks. And, you know, Basel 1 and Basel 2 and the Basel 3 frameworks are doing it and paid up capitals have gone high and so forth. But it's the risk part that they look at. They do not want banks to ex- overextend out on commercial loans, get the population. See, when you extend too much credit, Everyone's getting it. And then guess what? It diff- becomes difficult somewhere down the line to pay. That's exactly what happened in 2008. Mm-hmm. Mor- mortgage, finance, refinance, prices right. shooting up. Everyone was getting it. Pakistan went through the same thing in a couple of years back. Everyone had a credit card. Everyone had it. I mean, people were going and financing air conditioners and you know refrigerators and cars and motorcycles and VCR <laughs> and, and microwave ovens. And then, and, yeah. and then what? The default started happening, and it then piled how, up. How bad was it? How pretty, bad was it? Pretty bad. Pretty bad. I mean, we, to give you an example, of a country of 186, 87 million, we had at that point in time somewhere around close to 3 million credit cards. Uh, the total banking accounts, uh, bank accounts at that point were about uh, 22, 21, 21, 22 million. So 3 million credit cards wow. went, down to one, yep. went down to 1 million today. You know, it's funny, just from my, you know, small sample size, I lived in Singapore in 2009 and I would have friends that would travel to China and they travel to Thailand all the time. Mm. And it was, it was so common that people would have like seven or eight credit cards, but they would just roll the credit from one to the next, yeah, yeah, yeah. Would, you know, pay one credit card with the next and that would buy them say a Mike, month when or was two that? months. What, what year was that? 
Uh, that was 2009. So, so see, when you have ample of credit, you, you, you're pushing money in. Everyone's borrowed that money. Has right. the, has, the fundamentals are very important. Has the industry improved? Have pay skills improved? Has production gone up? Has products or services in the, in the country, their average price has gone up? Has the GDP gone up? Because that's the only way you get to pay back. Mm. Why, why, yeah, did, why did they take the loan in the first place? Because they needed the money. They didn't have any savings to tap into. So if mm-hmm. you're getting free money and you have no savings and no propensity to pay back, what do you think is going to happen? Defaults. Yeah, exactly. We've seen that. Um, interesting stuff. Well, you know, let's segue into the fact that the very first ATM transaction uh, based on Bitcoin took place in Boston today. This is uh, not today, this week. Uh, this is uh, this is a major a major thing, and it wasn't a bank. It was not a startup a uh, in shop. the Bay Area. It, coffee it, shop. Well, uh, I would debate that whether that was a real transaction in, in New Mexico. I would uh, I, I would argue that the real first transaction took place in Boston uh, uh, 24 hours after that. Be- why? Because the the system wasn't really hmm. the system wasn't really self operating. It was being helped along. So, what's the, the revenue Boston, model? First of all, let me ask you: What's the revenue model over here? Why would someone Why would someone put up a Bitcoin ATM when regulation slash uh, legal coverage is sort of a question mark? Well, that's the opportunity anywhere, right? Uh, the, the reason why we look at Elon Musk and people like that is that they go up against all of this with a determination, and the people who are nameless today that are doing this. Uh, yeah, either they're going to wind up in jail or they're going to be winding up in the front of uh, Forbes magazine on the cover, you know, and uh, Elon would be the first to tell you at his days in uh, PayPal, either one of those options were very likely with what they were doing. <laughs> yeah. So so let's let's look at it from the reality. Is it dangerous in a sense uh, that that something some regulator can come in and 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 invalidate this? Absolutely. The rules can change at any time for any reason. But these things have to be done. Uh, the, the new territories have, somebody's got to take the horse out and go over the mountain and see what's over there. And, uh, you know, th- there's arguments that the Boston thing wasn't the first one. And it's, the reason I'm saying that that's really one of the first ones is because it was a standalone system. The only thing that was connected to it was an Ethernet line. And you could actually end and begin a transaction through that machine. Some of the other machines that were being tested in the United States prior to that and just a couple of days before it, you didn't have a full cycle. There, You couldn't put cash in or a debit card and, and get really a useful Bitcoin at, at the other side of it. But that's neither here nor there. All of these entities that are doing this are entry-level individuals. They're people that you don't hear from areas of the country that you would not normally say this is where, you know, technology is going to flourish. And uh, it's interesting. It's interesting the fact that the state of California wants to recognize uh, Bitcoin and other algorithmic currencies as, as, a, as a legal currency, not legal tender. Uh, that would allow, if that uh, law, if that you know uh, bill becomes law, that will allow the United States to have a state that has recognized this as a unit of measure that can be utilized with inside a bank. And so banks could get involved at that point. But at this point, you're not going to see banks deploying these ATMs. You're going to see entrepreneurs. Um, yeah, right. And I would argue... Robocoin? I'm looking at the uh, TechCrunch article on RoboCoin, which they claim Austin was the first. Whoever was the first, I'm not quite sure. But either way, there's one in Austin. Uh, RoboCoin. Austin, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, New Mexico. Says, Ta- Taiwan said no. They tried in Taiwan. Um, yeah. But I mean, you feel that. And you got Canada that, that did it in one month, a million dollars worth of uh, transactions through one single ATM. You know, so yeah, yeah, it, that was in uh, Vancouver, I believe. Vancouver, how absolutely. Does, how does that? I, I've actually met a few guys who have made some money in, in ATM, in the ATM business. How how does it even work? I mean, do guys was it similar to the payment card um, ISO yeah. industry where banks sort of let everyone loose and said, "Hey, go distribute these, take a cut on the sale." Uh, I'm raising then, my they, hand. I'm one of those guys. Uh, back in the um, so Brian, uh, how many late 1980s? At this How point, zero. Zero. It's zero. 
but at the same time, I had a lot of pay phones out there too. I mean, we were doing a lot of things. Uh-huh. Since we were out in the field, the idea was to try to maximize our benefits of the merchant. And uh, there were certain environments where ATMs made a lot of sense. Now, the ATM laws were constantly changing uh, through the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Uh, the banks really wanted nothing to do with placing an ATM machine anywhere where there wasn't the potential of $50,000 moving through that machine at some prescribed event. Let's call it 30 days. A lot of times that was 10 days or seven days. There's also that really prickly little par- problem, and that is who's going to ensure that the money gets into the ATM machine and who's going to protect it. Now, the, the reason why independent companies flourished in this sector is that we were able to identify huge opportunities where ATM machines made sense. Uh, in fact, you would see, you would walk down, you know, uh, different, you know, strolling streets like, uh, like Austin and, uh, in Austin and stuff. And all of a sudden you'd see this independent ATM machine, uh, in front of, um, you know, a convenience store or even a shoe store. And the opportunities were great. The laws allowed you to collect what were called foreign ATM transaction charges, uh, foreign ATM cards. Of course, if it's not a bank, every card coming into that is a foreign ATM card. So at some point, you could collect, uh, you know, $5, $6, in some cases, $10. Uh, there was even the opportunity of collecting a percentage. Uh, those were rare, but uh, $10, I never this, did those. Are you talking about a transaction fee for yes. using the Oh my yes. God, it's highway robbery. But, well, let me tell you. And it I still exists today, by the way. Uh, so I didn't place these ATM machines in some of these locations, but let me give you one use case. One use case where I know $10 ATM existed in the United States, and maybe to this day, but I don't visit these places, and that is uh, clubs where, uh, where people take their clothes off, otherwise known as strip clubs. Uh, strip clubs were uh, an incredible opportunity, uh, and these ATM machines would have a $10 hit uh, for people to use their charges. Uh, and, and so that's obviously. But, you know, we were able to get into train stations, into bus stops, into uh, where taxi cabs coalesce. And, so, how, uh, how is, uh, so how are these guys, do you think, going to make money? How is robot? Same way. Well, well, well you know, I mean, to me, the ATM, the Bitcoin ATM, at the moment, is a glorified vending machine. Uh, I, I may be wrong, but that's what it seems like it right now. That's all ATMs are really, anyway. Yeah, I mean, well, I yeah. Mean, so you're putting money in, getting money. getting bitcoins out. It's just making the purchase of bitcoins absolutely frictionless. You know. Just, just put your money in and get the bitcoins out. And it's Uh-oh. a bit of grand theater, right? Because uh, at least for the first uh, infant phase of these ATMs, uh, and I visited the one in Canada and I visited other uh, other uh, examples of this, it's grand theater because people want to go up there and, and, and make sort of some kind of statement. And uh, it doesn't matter if Bitcoin's going well, down or going up. People just want to kind of interact well, with it. And it's I think they're, they're cracking a problem, which is right now, if you need to buy Bitcoins, you have to go through this process. You know, you have to register somewhere and say, et cetera, et cetera. But the ATM offers one thing that many, many people sort of skip. It's you're inserting a financial instrument, your credit card, your debit card, which in which case you have already been KYC'd. So you are not an anonymous entity. You are a very identified entity entering your card and getting Bitcoins out. And that you short circuited that entire registration problem down to zero. Exactly. And, and, you know, the idea that the reason why most people would want to use Bitcoin is to become somewhat anonymous. I think that's just a, uh, unfortunately, a, a sort of a pseudo, pseudo anonymous. Yeah, exactly. You know, but reality, you know, why are people doing this? Well, let's look at Mt. Gox, right? Mt. Gox, everybody is looking at it today and saying, wow, look at it. It didn't really have that big of an impact on Bitcoin. You can't get money in or out of Mt. Gox. And if you were in the United States and you tried to KYC to Mt. Gox, you're sending your driver's license, your mortgage paper. I mean, they wanted all sorts of identity uh, to a company in Japan. And you don't know what's going on with that. Actually, you can't uh, because the U.S. is on the blacklist. You can't get now, uh, yeah, in, in, you know, yeah. for, for all exchanges. I'm not sure if I understand. Uh, you, on Bitstamp, BDE, and Mt. Gox, they do not take U.S. clients. 
Maybe not officially, but uh, they have U.S. clients. Let me tell you. And uh, no, no, I'm sure. And, but I mean, w- w- when Duala uh, funds thing happened, that's when they really stopped. I mean, yeah, uh, they yeah, would that, not accept a U.S. Uh, ID or a U.S. bank account or a U.S. credit card or U.S. debit card. What have well, you? Well, unfortunately, for for U.S. citizens and citizens around the world, Mt. Gox essentially has their money. Hmm. Uh, and and if you had a Bitcoin ATM down the street, you wouldn't have this problem because your money would be there in a paper wallet. Or uh, if if Coinbase was moving very quickly, it'd be in a Coinbase wallet. And and see, there's those opportunities. I mean, hmm. if you wanted to buy Bitcoin today and you wanted to do it in a, in a very you know controlled setting, the easiest way to do it would either be a, a, a you know an ATM machine like this or Coinbase. And, uh, th- and Coinbase think, is well, 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 there's one one difference here. So Coinbase is uh, not an exchange. Uh, I mean, we have but to you're be buying able, Bitcoin from yeah, the consumer yeah, perspective. Yeah, yeah, you, you're still buying Bitcoin. You're buying, but you're not trading. You can't trade on Coinbase. Uh, insofar as I know, there isn't a, a a Bitcoin exchange in the U.S. at present. Coin, That's very true. Coin That's very X, true. Coin X, maybe uh, Megan Burton, who's the CEO, she might come up with the first one. But as an exchange, as a trading exchange, there isn't one because there is no place where you can take your Bitcoins, go trade it and, you know, sort of up and down, put your values in and so forth. And that's why California wants to recognize this as a legal currency, because that would allow the very first U.S. based um, exchanges to take place in an environment that regulators feel at least a little better about than what it, you know. And that's what the, the the Wink Twins are doing, you know, uh, the Facebook yeah. Twins. Uh, because <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think California's realizing they can open up new forms of uh, tax revenue streams. They've had such success with the opening up marijuana that they've uh, they want to get into more slightly edgy industries. Um, yeah, I'm and, looking- and, and technologists are behind it. I mean, you, you, yeah. there's some very large uh, venture capitalists that are behind getting this uh, recognized as a legal as a legal currency. And so it's not an accident. This thing is flying through uh, with everybody saying yes, from bankers to, uh, you know, uh, everybody in the Silicon Valley. I mean, anyone yeah. anyone who's holding on to Bitcoins uh, who has uh, access to exchanges where they can buy Bitcoins, where liquidity is present, then the Bitcoin ATM makes a lot of sense because it simply short circuits the entire distance, uh, the entire process. I mean, you could have never bought bitcoins before. Just put your debit card in, give the money, get the get bitcoins out. God, isn't that isn't that good? So I'm looking at a report where it says there is three hundred there is three hundred and seventy six thousand ATMs currently deployed in the United States. That transaction. It's now it's now over five hundred thousand. You're looking oh. at a report that's probably about two thousand eight or something. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. So with that with that many of them out there, are we really going to? I mean, is there a better way? Right? Is are we really going to redeploy new machines, or is there going to be a company that comes around and retrofits existing machines? To accept Bitcoin, the, the Any ATM can do it. Any ATM can instantly yeah, your be NDS, converted. Your 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 NDS software on on, on most of these uh, ATMs can can do anything. The only mm-hmm. the only thing is, again, you know, rolling out even a screen on an ATM is such a. Uh, a elongated process for most banks because what happens when you have to share the screen across other ATM networks or other banks? Uh, how does your screen show up on other banks, you know? Uh, so mm-hmm. it's it's a very long-run process, uh, one that's filled with compliance and regulations and so forth. But uh, can it be done? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Do you want to do it? Well, again, it's the inertia. The banks uh, see this as a huge inertia. They have to invest so much into technology and processes and pilot rollouts. It's perhaps cheaper for for entrepreneurs to invest in an ATM machine, make one that's product-specific to cryptocurrencies, and insert it into the network. You have to understand there's no cash being uh, dispensed from these machines. Uh, there's no cash whatsoever. It's it's you nothing. You're doing nothing but swiping a card, getting the authorization, taking the funds in, going to real time to the market, uh, you know, market maker, seeing if those uh, coins are available, buying them, and you know, spitting out a receipt that says, says, "Well, here are your bitcoins." That's it. Now, Faisal, could yeah. a Bitcoin ATM be legal in your part of the world right now? Could an entrepreneur do this with a money transmitter license or whatever the, the equivalent is? 
So, uh, and I, I, I read uh, the um, license for three countries, which is uh, Pakistan, India, and the GCC, specifically UAE. And in all those three countries, this is gray, gray meaning it's not even defined. There are particular areas, yeah. there, there are, so Bitcoin may not be defined, but here's, here's the catch. If you were to put in a, a payment facilitating, uh, facilitating machine or a teller, automated teller machine into a network without the appropriate licenses, uh, you need a license for that. Uh, in this part of the world, like you were saying, you cannot just go and get an ATM, invest, buy an ATM and say, well, I live in a flat, uh, you know, apartments where there are a thousand people, a thousand apartments, and I think they need an ATM. No, you can't do that. Only the bank can do that. So self-owned ATM or self-owner premise-operated ATMs are not yet uh, part and parcel of the culture over here. Again, a huge opportunity. Interesting, interesting. So you can actually use that gray area with a, the proper startup to possibly influence this type of uh, change? Or would that be how to do it? Would somebody just go out there and do it and then see what happens? Or would they sit with with bank regulators and, and try to cobble something out? How would innovation take place? In so, that part you know, of so great question. And, and, you know, banks are open to it. It's just this whole concept, even to people who are very well-versed, uh, people like yourselves or myself, it is a very complex ecosystem to understand. I mean, we're learning as we go along. I mean, I did not know about transaction malleability about, say, what, two, three weeks back. I had no idea about it. So, you know, when you go to a regulator, they need to look at every single thing and they only have so much time. So it's all about education and awareness. And I think once they're educated and made more aware of it that, you know, this is not a threat to the existing fiat currencies. This is a benefit and add on to the society, et cetera, et cetera. I think they'll open up, they, they, but they're being very, very cautious about it. Um, and it's and it depends what mood they're in. I mean, if they're having a bad, you know, Monday, uh, you really don't want to be telling them because they'll just say, nope, thank you, nope, you know? A lot of banks have bad Mondays, let me tell you, from experience, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I've learned that. <laughs> so do, do you think there's going to be a uh, similar move as you see uh, Balanced and Stripe start to accept Bitcoins, is there going to be a similar move in the brick and mortar payment processors where I could uh, swipe my, my coin card and, and pay in Bitcoin? Because essentially, I, I sort of question the, I, obviously cash is valuable now and ATMs are valuable. And I think there's also a hidden agenda with uh, the Bitcoin ATM and that it, it's an education tool, right? So, Only so yes. of who issues, who issues you the coin card? Number one. Uh, number two, uh, what's the transaction confirmation time? Well, you know, the coin card would obviously, uh, it lets us do another thought experiment and I'll do a fantasy and I'll give a business, uh, a business strategy right now. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, the coin card would be issued by Coinbase. Uh, Coinbase would, again, I'm not saying, uh, they're doing this. I'm just fantasizing now. Coinbase would say, you want to monetize your capability in this card to pay at the greater world. Now, all of a sudden, all of these APIs, like what Balance did with Coinbase. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a Coinbase world. They just happen to be the ones that are the most innovative at this point. I think they're moving the, the fastest. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I think, first off, I don't see any difference between a mobile transaction, a retail transaction, or an online transaction in a real sense, other than the fact that the interchange rates are different because the fraud levels are different. But from a practical standpoint, from an API level, they're indistinguishable. Hmm. Now you hmm. have to look at the, in, and, and that's becoming so great. It's just like we were talking about person to person payments versus business, uh, consumer to business payments. There's no difference really when it comes down to it. It's just a matter of uh, a perspective in the, in the shades of gray. So now we have this card that's, um, say it has a mag strip on it. And, uh, and, and merchants who are using existing infrastructure read that. Maybe a company like Discover, maybe a company like American Express says, yeah, we'll have that run through our network and, uh, yeah, we'll charge the merchant, uh, you know, a, a few pennies a transaction, but yeah, we're fine with that. You know, th there's a number of reasons that they may do that. There's a number of reasons they may not. Yeah, but or, Brian, but Brian, you know, I mean, uh, the person buying their double decaf cinnamon latte at Starbucks is going to charge his Coinbase card has to wait 10 minutes before the confirmation comes in. 
yes and no. Uh, I mean, if in fact it's inside, say, the Coinbase ecosystem, and if in fact they're using the the more advanced ways to allow these transactions to move forth in the mining operations. Right now, the mining operations are such I'm getting transaction fees on Bitcoin transactions mm. that are starting to get close to the amount that I'm making on discovering Bitcoin. In, in these larger mining pools with lower hash rates. Hmm. On my high hash rates, we're getting so many Bitcoins still that, you know, the, the, the transaction fees are relatively not non-existent. Why do the transaction fees inside of a Bitcoin transaction matter? Because they move to the front of the line. And in the confirmations, some confirmations ah, only... there they, you have it. Yes. I think that's, and, the, that's and, the secret. A lot of people don't know this is going on, and it's going on in a very methodical way. But a lot of companies like Coinbase, and I don't want to speak for them, but what they can be doing is they say, I only need three or four uh, confirmations. Now, if they're running their own mining operations, they can do three or four confirmations very, very quickly. Hmm. And the rest hmm. of the world starts confirming and building the blockchain. And it's really about time. All mining is from that regard is we're building a time code on exactly when this took place. That's why the malleability issue, we all knew that us miners and people who studied the original papers, we all knew that the 51% problem and the malleability problem always existed and there are remediations that you could do. The problem with Mt. Gox is they didn't really do it. They built a, a super wallet, which is essentially the same wallet that you could download on your computer, but they were managing in a way that unfortunately allowed this malleability problem to be magnified and they should have done things to not let that happen. Mm. You think that's going to be the, that's going to be the solution then essentially uh, a specific industry say the coffee shop industry is going to have a bid bid to ask price on the speed at which they No, 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 no. This is all going to take place in the background. The the merchant and the consumer will never know it. Uh, the mining operations will definitely know it because everybody says, "Well, what happens when the 21 millionth bitcoin is discovered?" Well, Somebody's got to perform those transactions, and they're going to be transaction fees. They're not a lot of, you know, it's, it's not a lot of dollars. Mm, it's just like mm. any other uh, micro, you know, transaction. Well, I mean, you're also assuming that Bitcoin is the only protocol or the only money. Exactly. Uh, but if you were to use Ripple XRP, it, it's mm. instantaneous. It's almost, mm -hmm. I mean, it's less than, you know, 30 milliseconds and it's transaction confirmed. Exactly. And therein lies opportunity. See, whenever we see a problem as technologists, there's that's when we turn on our opportunity uh, brain and say, okay, well, how do we fix that? So, you know, within all this, you, you have the ripple uh, scenario, which is beautiful, but you have other things like, uh, you know, having early, cons I call early consensus transactions. So, we can see this moving there. Now, the question is, why would the consumer use Bitcoin to buy coffee? That's a whole nother conversation. And it's going to probably be an ongoing dialogue we're going to have for a very long time. Because I'm not convinced that you want to use Bitcoin to necessarily buy coffee today. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, yeah, but there's going to be reasons. I, why, the I think I think the, the uh, business case right now for ATMs, uh, Bitcoin ATMs, is... Uh, the vending operation per se, you know, being being able to buy in a friction, frictionless manner uh, bitcoins. I mean, just put my card in, get my bitcoins out uh, for anyone who wants to do so. And the more, the merrier. Uh, and I think the transaction part, what I do once I have those bitcoins is something that, you know, companies are, and I'm sure quite a few startups are working on that part. Exactly. Right, right let now, me, let me ask you guys a, uh, let me guys, let me ask you guys a final question. We'll place a little wager on it. In one year from now, so today is February 22nd, 2014, one year, 365 days, how many, how many ATMs in the United States will accept Bitcoin in one year? Give me, give me a number. Uh, you, mean you, generate, you mean generate Bitcoin as a, generate, as a, as a they product? Accept Bitcoin, generate Bitcoin, gener, accept Bitcoin in exchange for cash. So they'll, they'll, they'll give you U.S. dollars and they will accept Bitcoins. Oh, okay. So you're doing a reverse. So what I'm what I'm thinking is, I put money in, I get Bitcoin out. You're saying I put Bitcoin in and cash comes out. Yeah, I can't imagine. I, there, I there's a two different Bitcoin. things. No, no, no. If, if you're talking about the former, then my my answer is about a thousand. If you're asking yeah. about the latter, I would probably say zero. I would say zero yeah. too. Yeah, because, mm -hmm. uh, well, if it, if it is, now let, let me hedge that just a bit. If it is, it's going to be in California, <laughs> um, unless South Dakota does it. You know, listen, one of these states, just like what South Dakota did with banking, the reason why, if you really look at where most credit cards in the United States, uh, the bank location, 
question is originating from. It's a South Dakota location. What they did was they took the state, which was not known for much uh, other than maybe some farming and, and, and some manufacturing industries, and they said, you know, we need to get finance in here. So they adjusted the, uh, the, the laws for financial institutions to make it valuable to locate there. We're going to see that happen today. We're going to literally in the next couple of weeks, we're going to start seeing that fight. And I can tell you, California is trying to be in front of it. But a lot of these other states, they're not going to they're not going to sit on their hands. They're going to move on this. And, and in a lot of ways, it's going to be far ahead of where the federal government is going to be. I, I also want to add that cashing out is a problem that is uh, probably looking at BSA laws and cash over counter and, you know, identification. Yes. So what if I am not with Coinbase? I mean, is this ecosystem only going to be, you know, uh, limited to Coinbase cards or CoinX cards or what have you? What if I just have Bitcoins and I want to enter my Bitcoin number, whatever it is, and cash out? The ATM does not know who who I am. The regulators do not know who I am. And I don't think so that's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and this is the opportunity for so many startups. I mean, there's going to be, you know, Coinbase is really very far ahead, but I've been talking to a lot of startups. Uh, but even then, they, they choose one this. What's that? They, they chose one approach. I mean, there's so many different approaches. There's so many exactly. problems. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll tell you of an approach right now where you could go to a site, any site, uh, use any of your Visa or MasterCard, uh, attach it, attach your Bitcoins to it, and be able to cash out. Because once you give your Visa and MasterCard, uh, that basically says that the banking system knows who you are. So you put your Visa MasterCard to say, well, what do you want to do? You want to do cash, uh, you know, from your credit card? No. Oh, guess what? You have Bitcoins. You want to get your Bitcoins out? Yeah, sure. I want to take my cash out. And the only reason is because it's it's by association. You've, you've, uh, you've, you've, you've sort of tagged your Bitcoins to your known identification, uh, financial identification instrument, which is your Visa or MasterCard. And that's the only way you could do it. Uh, obviously, there are other ways, but this would be the simpler way. So we go, we come full wow, circle. I love that. We, we, we come full circle. We're talking about banking and how banking is going to look. I think the modern banking uh, system, and this is always going to be a moving target, is going to take into account all of the financial aspects of your life. And we've only covered a very small sliver of the milestones, mortgages, uh, you know, car buying, and, and now holding Bitcoin within mm. all of your financial profile. We also could talk about investment and, uh, and, and crowdsource funding. Imagine if we could amalgamate all of these things, like, you know, your, your donations, uh, to, uh, you know, possibly, uh, people in the world that need money, uh, your, your Kickstarter programs, all of this amalgamated into one financial uh, dashboard. Imagine what the world would be like if we could do that. And I don't have to figure how much doggy coin I have, Litecoin or or uh, Aurora coin or whatever. It's all in one banking system. That's where it's going. That's the future. That's and, it. And, uh, and not even one banking system, multiple banking systems, but single exactly. dashboard. Single dashboard. Single dashboard. That's where the opportunity is. And that's why what Simple was about and continues to be and mm. the, the next Simples, the excitement is that's where we're going to be going. Five years from now, we would see all of this as being so obvious. Right now, yeah. it's sort of like, <laughs> it's all really wow. Simple. Yeah. It's all very simple. All right, guys. I think we should wrap this one up. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Great show. Thank you. Talk next week. Take, Take care, care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.